Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Slash Filmcast, the official podcast of SlashFilm.com. I'm David Chen, and with me are... Devinder Hardwar. And Jeff Kanata. And welcome to the show, everyone. Uh, today, what we're going to be doing is discussing what we've been watching. We've got a bunch of film news to talk about this week, which you can find at SlashFilm.com. And then we're going to conclude with an in-depth review. This week, we'll be reviewing It Comes at Night. New film out... Uh, from A24, a lot of requests for this one, a lot of requests to discuss it. I'm looking forward to getting into the spoilers for It Comes at Night with you guys. A lot of requests, Dave, but nobody, uh, nobody throwing money at it. <laughs> nobody throwing <laughs> money at it like they are with our review of Transformers The Last Night. Now, uh, for those who don't remember, during the last episode of the Slash Filmcast, episode 422, where we discussed The Mummy... Uh, we said we don't want to review Transformers uh, The Last Night, but we will do that if you guys contributed at least $500 to our GoFundMe page at GoFundMe.com slash Slashformers. To you know benefit what? LA Children's Hospital. It's very important that you <laughs> That's don't right. do that That's out. That's right. It wasn't just <laughs> not for to, us. Not <laughs> that we're going to line our pockets to go see this movie. <laughs> we are benefiting... Uh, the kids at uh, L.A. Children's Hospital. Forgot about that very important part of the, the fundraiser, <laughs> Jeff. Um, but, guys, $500 isn't cool. You know what's cool? Over $5,500, which is nice. what Slash Filmcast listeners have contributed in the last week alone. Uh, the campaign is currently at $5,731 of the $500 goal. And there's still time to get in on this. If you want to support us uh, and support L.A. Children's Hospital... Go to GoFundMe.com slash slash formers. That's GoFundMe.com slash and then the word slash formers. And you can contribute to a worthy cause. Yeah. Uh, that is to say helping out children and also contribute to a terrible cause at the same time. That is to say forcing us to watch and review yeah. Transformers. Yeah, there's still it, time for you to donate. There's also still time for you to pull all your money out so we don't <laughs> have to do this. Yes. Uh, but uh, in all seriousness, think of the children, I'm, Jeff. I'm so, I am so proud of of this and of our listeners and of us just i'm just so proud of it i i'm so happy in fact i was just texting back and forth with my dad today and uh told him about it and i just it it i think it's a wonderful thing that we're mm-hmm. you know able to take this this movie that by all accounts should be Completely irredeemable. <laughs> and, and the tweets are coming in. I mean, create something good about it, you know? Yeah. Jeff it also and I, shows how much our fans hate us. <laughs> Jeff and I have both seen Transformers the last night at this point. <laughs> and, I, you know, Jeff, I think we can confidently say that... You're, that people are getting their money's worth. Well, yeah, I, I'm, I'm really glad we did this fundraiser because if I did that for nothing, I'd be pretty upset right now. <laughs> I, also can, I also can say with... A hundred percent confidence <laughs> that whatever you guys have donated for this episode will be handsomely rewarded. This is going to be a banner episode of the show. <laughs> Let me also say this, Jeff. Whatever amount you donated, it is not enough. <laughs> so so help make up that difference at gofundme.com slash slash formers. Uh, and I, I think we're going to have a pretty cool guest on uh, next week on the show to review Transformers with us. Uh, but I, I, we have not locked that down yet. So once we lock it down, we'll tweet, at, we'll tweet that out. We're very excited about that. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I think, yeah, you will get your money's worth. It will be a fun episode. And, again, gofundme.com slash formers to contribute to 
this great cause, LA Children's Hospital. All right. Uh, I also wanted to mention you can find more episodes of this podcast at slashfilmcast.com. Email us at slashfilmcast at gmail.com. Let's get into what we've been watching this week. I want to mention a few things uh, of what we've been watching. I want to get real on you guys okay. for a second here. All right. Finally. So I directed this movie called Dr. B that uh, I released online this week and published it at SlashFilm.com. And it is a short documentary about a professional yo-yoer. And I uh, shot and directed this movie, uh, made it with uh, a bunch of other talented people in the Seattle area. Very grateful for all their help. Uh, But I'm going to drop some knowledge bombs on you guys here and say that... uh, you know, Dr. B, you know, I was very proud of this short film. I uh, showed it to a bunch of people uh, even before I, I tried submitting it to festivals, and people overall seemed to enjoy it. Uh, but Dr. B was rejected from every single festival that I submitted. <laughs> I'm it to. sorry, Dave. Um, you know, over a dozen festivals. I spent hundreds of dollars submitting it to festivals. Oh, man. Probably and because they got too many yo-yo documentaries. It, yeah. they, they were full up on the yo-yo documentaries. That's actually what yeah. they all told me, Jeff. How it's you like know? you flung it out there, Dave, and it just came right back. <laughs> and it came right straight back. It went around the world, and it came right back. You walked um, that dog, and no one was eh, – whatever. Yeah. Uh, and so you, you know, I don't take it necessarily as an indictment of the quality of the film, just that – um, for a lot of film festivals, it's about building a specific program, and right, a right. yo-yo documentary doesn't necessarily fit into that. Uh, but I just feel very fortunate to live in an age where I can put this film out online. Uh, the film has over a thousand views. That's not very much, but it's more than would be at a screening of that movie in a uh, in a film festival. You know what I mean? And right, right. Uh, and it'll likely grow in the in the days and weeks to come. But just getting you know probably a, a couple dozen tweets or messages about how much people like the movie, uh, I found it very gratifying, very moving because it's like, well, no one else really wanted this movie, but but uh, a bunch of people were still able to watch it and enjoy it. And so, yeah. uh, so just you know, I watched it and enjoyed it myself, David. Yeah, thanks, uh, Jeff, and I, I thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed it. In fact. Uh, a couple of weeks ago when I was um, – I don't know. I didn't tell you this. But when I was visiting my friends in uh, in Portland, they have a nine-year-old and uh, he was kind of talking about yo-yoing and had a yo-yo. And I was like, oh, you got to watch this this thing. And I pulled it up on my phone and we watched it together. And he you just pulled up a private link on your phone that <laughs> yeah. wasn't meant for anyone? You no, it, wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't so much the private link as the public one that I posted on my own personal site. <laughs> oh. Uh, well, in any case, uh, yeah. Dr. B, it's available online right now. If you've seen it already, uh, thanks for checking it out. Thanks for tweeting at me that you liked it. Um, I've talked with many people out there who mm-hmm. uh, have done the same thing. You know, They've made a short film, and it hasn't gotten any festival love. I, some people have uh, submitted it to many more festivals, like put way more work into a, a short film than me, submitted it to way uh, more festivals, and still got nothing. It's a, uh, it's definitely a lonely journey out there, uh, and so just know that I'm sympathizing with you, and that it's amazing that we live in an age that you can still put something online, and it can still find even just a little bit of traction. Yeah, uh, because that's not the world we always lived in, you know. Um, it's, it's, so it's a bold new world. And how long did you work on this, Dave? You know, to be honest, not that long. It was uh, like a couple of days of shooting, and maybe okay. three to four days of editing and post. Um, so it wasn't like a thing that consumed six months of my life or anything like that. So this uh, is not like a poetic story of like, yeah. No, no. Well, I, if, if it was to be a poetic story, you would need to get more than, you know, the 1400 <laughs> views it has right now. Um, but yeah, it, it was a film that I just kind of, uh, 
tried to see, you know, can I make a, a short film uh, that has a beginning, middle, and end that mm-hmm. is interesting to people and that costs almost no money to make uh, because, you know, uh, short films can get expensive but without much opportunity for return. So you can find uh, Dr. B online, just uh, Google Dr. B, or it will be in the show notes for this episode of the podcast. Uh, all right. Uh, I also had a chance to see a few other things. Rough Night, new film by Lucia Aniello. Uh, and this is uh, Lucia Aniello, uh, Aniello is one of the people who is behind uh, Broad City, a show that I know Devendra and I love. Jeff, are you a Broad City mm-hmm. fan? No, you know, I, I, I will uh, say embarrassingly, I have never watched an episode. Oh, mm. Jeff. Oh, it's, yes. very, it's very fun. Watch I, it with your wife. You yeah. will love it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so Rough Night... Um, this movie uh, is out in theaters this past weekend, uh, and I'm going to just read the plot summary from IMDb. Things go terribly wrong for a group of girlfriends who hire a male stripper for a bachelorette party in Miami. Uh, it stars Scarlett Johansson, Zoe Kravitz, Alana Glazer, Kate McKinnon, uh, a bunch of other talented people. And uh, I-, I just want to say I had a great time at this movie. I really enjoyed it, saw it on opening night, and it was a lot of fun. Um, but unfortunately, this movie didn't do very well at the box office. It made mm-hmm. less than $10 million, which is a shame because I think Lucia Aniello, Aniello I keep mispronouncing her name, apologies, is, uh, according to this profile I read of her at The Ringer, this is the first uh, R-rated uh, comedy directed by a woman in 20 years, I think. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and so I really wanted this movie to do well, and I think that it is funny enough. You know, some people were very turned off by it. I read a review of Zero Stars by Walter Chaw at Film Freak Central. You know, so some people really did not like it, and, and I can understand uh, why people didn't like it. You know, there's a certain ugliness to uh, humanity that this movie shows. It's like... Um, very similar to the plot of Very Bad Things. You guys seen that that, that movie? Yeah, that, yeah, uh, yeah that, that was hilarious. Where dudes <laughs> accidentally kill a female stripper. You know, uh-huh. this is the mirror image of that. And uh, that's actually what I was worried about: is that it, it would feel a little, yeah, too too much like that movie. Well, that movie is incredibly dark, right? I mean, yeah. And this movie is not dark. So imagine like a horrible act. Uh, but without the dark elements of it. It's a and, funny murder. Yeah, it's a funny murder. And, and so I can understand why that uh, bothers right, people, right, right. You know, why that chafes uh, some people. But I, I had a great time. I didn't take the movie super seriously and mm-hmm. thought it, it delivered on the laughs. My, my uh, audience also had a, a really good time as well. Um, but unfortunately, it didn't catch on with mainstream audiences. I think a lot of a lot of people didn't even know it was out this weekend. Um, yeah, based on it, it kind of came and went. And also, what a cast. Like, yeah. That is surprising. Amazing yeah. cast. Kate McKinnon, uh, definitely a highlight, again, as usual, in, in most of the stuff that she does. Uh, Scarlett Johansson, though, that's two bombs in a row for her yeah. in very different genres. And we uh, haven't seen her be very, very silly in a while, right? She's been in so many prestige things that, uh, yeah. that this feels a little different. I mean, if you she's, sort of a, she's sort of a, yeah. a Saturday Night Live, uh, one of their sort of uh, preferred hosts. Yeah. You know, she's, she pops really? up a lot, and she does a lot of silly stuff on that show. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it's nice to see that kind of translated onto the big screen. Yeah. Anyway, I, I had a good time, um, but it, it's a movie that I think will find its audience on video on demand. I'm so bummed it didn't do better at the box office. That's a shame, yeah. yeah. Uh, that's Rough Night. It's out in theaters right now. Uh, also, I had a chance to check out The Trip to Italy. This is on Netflix right now. Uh, Steve Coogan and Rob Bryden. Ugh. 
Um, Love that they're still making these movies. <laughs> not only that, they're making a new one, The Trip to Spain. I can't believe this premise is sustaining itself through three films. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, these movies are fun. It's like hanging out with two funny dudes for a couple hours. Yeah. That's basically the entire movie. Um, the food porn stuff is even less pronounced in this one than the first trip. Uh, and so is the kind of midlife crisis-y, you know, personal exploration of each other's lives. Like, that stuff is just really toned down in favor Good. of just Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon doing funny impressions of people. <laughs> uh, and so I enjoyed it, had a good time, but there's really not that much to these films. It's just like a fun trifle. I, I am a, a bit kind of surprised to see what I consider to be very hyperbolic praise. Like people are like, this yeah, movie yeah, is yeah. amazing. And it's like, yeah, it's very fun. It's very enjoyable, but I don't know that I think it's some kind of epic that's going to stand the test of time. Uh, you, you guys have, uh, I think, Devendra, you've seen both movies, right? I've right. seen the first one. I haven't seen Italy. Oh, okay. um, I'm looking forward to seeing this at some point, though. I know it's been out for a couple of years. It's it's sort of like listening to these guys. It's like a podcast, right? You're just yeah. watching them go on a it's, trip. It's I like feel like, guys, it's like listening to the we can do this. But with, with yeah. much more talented people. We Let's should just do, this. do this, guys. Let's go it's, on a road trip. You know why they do it, right? It's to get free trips to Italy and Spain. <laughs> Yeah, I think we should do the same. Unfortunately, have they have major publications and outlets backing them to uh, like funding their trips? Oh, we have GoFundMe. We have a major (laughs) website. We we have a website. We have uh, the potential to launch a Kickstarter road trip to Avatar Land. Yeah, Yeah, we're going to do this, but with Avatar, it's 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 like Italy except Avatar. It's like Italy except Avatar. The first time in human history anyone's ever spoken those words. Uh, anyway, The Trip to Italy is on Netflix. The Trip to Spain is coming out in uh, the next few months, I believe, or the very near future. Mm-hmm. A trailer was released recently. So I think um, uh, if you like these movies, you'll have more to come. Anyway, that's what I've been watching this week. Devinder Hardwell, what have you been watching this week? Uh, I saw The Founder, which is the uh, the biopic about Ray Kroc, the one of the founders of McDonald's, or I guess the founder of the McDonald's as we know it. Right. And uh, Michael Keaton, you know, this, right? Michael Plays Keaton. This is a very if you like Michael Keaton, you will have a lot of things to like about this movie. This movie really uses all the the Keatony aspects of Michael Keaton. They use like every his... part of the Keaton in this movie. <laughs> yeah. All of it. They're like, like nothing. They're like the Eskimos with the Keaton. <laughs> yeah. This is like uh, <laughs> no, no foot, part foot of to Keaton nose. Foot to nose, Keaton. Um, but yeah, you get the charm, you get the funniness, and you get like the kind of insanity that he brings to some of his characters, and also the slight darkness there too, because this is a guy who basically stole a business from you know two really like just I think normal kind of sweet guys. Um, I like the supporting cast too: Nick Offerman and John Carroll Lynch. Um, didn't like Laura Dern just being like. We we talk about movies where women are cast to just be like the nagging wife, right? The wife who was like, "Oh, you you won't do this, you know, you'll never achieve this," or just who gets in the way of the star's vision. Um, I feel like this movie kind of does that to her, and that's just sad, especially after uh, Big Little Lies and uh, you know just Laura Dern kicking ass all around. Uh, beyond that, though, like I think it's a really interesting character portrait. I was just sad about that Laura Dern bit. Like, why even cast her? You know, she's great. Um, I thought if you're she gonna... was kind of a tragic figure in that movie. I, I felt she like is, but... she was supporting him and he's just too much of a dick to – Oh, to... definitely. Yeah. Like it's – this is one of those movies where in a way you're sort of rooting for the guy even as he's being a gigantic asshole. I just wish – I wish it gave a little more to her character because she – every single scene she's in is just a response to his like – 
uh, his enthusiasm and what he's doing and trying to build a business and how she's not like the undertone of it is how she's not supporting him the way he wants her to. So like when things go bad, it's like, oh, I mean, I feel bad for her, but the movie frames it in a way that didn't feel fair to her either. Um, so that's that's the only thing about it that I didn't quite like. But yeah, this is a great showing for Michael Keaton. And if you don't know the like, you know, kind of what happened with the founding of McDonald's, it's pretty crazy, too. All right. Yeah, this was in my top ten of the year last year. Mm-hmm. I, I I loved this movie, and I I really never sided with him when I was watching it. I just I I thought it was a brilliant sort of Trumpian view of how capitalism can pervert. I, I thought it was a really interesting movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's the founder, and it's available uh, on video on demand right now. Uh, now, Devendra and Jeff, you guys were both at E three this past week, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, which From- which number E three did you was this for you guys? Fifteen, sixteen. Wow. 16? How about you, Devinder? This is my first D three, oh, and wow. also my first major trip to L A. Like outside of just hanging around L A X for a little while. So nice. it was it was exciting, but also like yeah, I've also done a ton of other shows and things like Comic Con. So it's like I'm used to the convention life. This show is insane though. Like just so crowded, so crazy. I you think it would just be all fun and games at E three, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's also no. a ton of yeah, work. So E three for I those do. who don't know yeah. is the Electronics Entertainment Expo. It's it's essentially a uh, games industry event that happens each year. Although uh, this year they uh, allowed fifteen thousand fans to pay for mm-hmm. tickets to attend. So it's usually just uh, trade and industry and press. Uh, but this year they had a bunch of fans there, like fifteen thousand fans. Yeah, there. it yeah. was a madhouse. And we well, covered it for Engadget. Jeff Kanata covered it for DLC and for uh, for it other places. Like yeah. Um, so yeah. So what? Uh, what do you guys think? What, what do you want to report back that might be of interest to our film-going uh, fans here? Go I'm ahead, very, David. very tired. I think that's, <laughs> that's the main thing, guys. Because, yeah, it is a lot of like uh, – so when I go to E3, right, I'm, I'm taking meetings. And I'm like doing brief demos of games but not always the be- you know the biggest titles. So I didn't get to see Mario, which I really wanted to see. Um and a couple of the other games, too. I was really, yeah, I was just kind of funneled into doing a couple other interviews. Uh, but I, uh, it was interesting to see the unveiling of the Xbox One X, which is a nice piece of hardware. Uh, I will say my favorite thing I saw there is a tiny indie game. It's a PlayStation VR game called Moss, where mm-hmm. you play a mouse with a sword, and it looks amazing, and it feels like a great classic adventure game like Zelda, and it it's awesome in VR. So there there are definitely good things there. It's just such a long show because I was there since like uh, I was there since the Saturday before the show started. The show started on Tuesday, yeah. so pretty insane. Yes, it is indeed, uh, and this, this year even more so. It's it's becoming more and more like Comic Con. I think to those of us who have to work there is chagrin because uh, it used to be a, a you know a work event where you would go and do work, and now it's become mm-hmm. this big thing that is for fans, and that's that's fine if you're a fan and you know it's cool. But uh, I think a lot of us in the industry are are really hoping they adopt. Uh, the Gamescom model. Gamescom is the European, uh, it's in Germany, a European video game show where they do two days at the beginning of just mm-hmm. for press and industry, and then uh, I think two or three days after that, that it's open to the public. So, oh, that's smart, and that's I a huge show too. That's like one hundred fifty thousand people, I think, some ridiculous yeah. amount. Yeah, massive, massive show. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, 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 I also saw Moss. I loved that. It, it is uh, the sort of the low 
the the base level for where video games are now is mm-hmm. so much higher than it's ever been. Like the the worst stuff is better than most of the best stuff in previous years. It's just <laughs> video games are are really really high quality these days, and and that really was evident from the show. Um, Jeff, I, I heard you drop some traitorous language on your ooh. DLC podcast. You said, uh, and I'm not quoting exactly, but you said something along the lines of. You're looking f- more. You're, you're more looking forward to God of War, uh, the new video game for PS4, than you are to the plot of any other movie. That's coming. I didn't say any. I didn't say any. <laughs> I said. I said. I'm. I'm. The for the first time, I'm looking forward to discovering the story, the plot of a of a video game. This in this case, it's God of War. Uh, mm. As much as I am looking forward to any plot in a movie, so it, it's not like I'm looking forward to it more than any movie, but it is. It is. You know, even movies that have great plots, or excuse me, uh, games that have great plots like the Naughty Dog games, you know, Uncharted and Last of Us and stuff that tell great stories, I never am anticipating, oh, what's going to happen to Nathan Drake next? You know, it's, it is exciting. It's fun to see how those stories un- unfold. But I am just completely swept up in this idea of a dad of war you know the new god of war is all about kratos as a mature guy who has a son and has to shepherd him through this very violent world and the son sort of is is teaching him innocence uh, even as kratos is teaching him how to survive it, it and i had an interview with uh, cory barlog who is the creative director on it and hearing him talk about it like he went and he learned from the pixar guys and he took a few years off from the game industry and just learned narrative and story and came back to this game refreshed and has brought such a modern, uh, incredibly uh, nuanced take to to video game storytelling mm-hmm. that I think is going to sort of herald a new paradigm for what video game – what we expect of video games. Nice. And, and doing it with a character from a franchise that has been so immature and so frivolous and silly and over the top, I think even – comments in a meta way even even more powerfully um and he has his he has a son he talked about uh the fact that his wife is swedish and speaks swedish and is teaching their son swedish and he does not speak swedish and so there's this whole theme in the new god of war of kratos going to this new land and his son can speak and read the language and he cannot and those themes are of of feeling like this wonderful power shift of the son the, the young boy having more knowledge than the father. I just find that all so fascinating and it's going to be such an interesting thing to explore inside the context of an action-packed video game. Yeah, looking forward to that one too. And I heard it's, the entire game's going to be like one tracking shot too, I think, right? Like one just continuous take yeah. as a game, which is you know easier to do with a, with a CG camera and everything, but still tough to do narratively. Yeah, yeah, and there's yeah, some yeah. big crazy moments already that mm-hmm. they're showing. And also, uh, Spider-Man. I don't know if you guys got a oh, chance yeah. to see the, the Spider-Man trailer, but yep. there is an action sequence in the trailer they showed for Spider-Man that is playable. I mean, it's not just a cutscene; it's a played moment. There's a lot of quick time events and and certain tricks they use to make it playable, but it is as cinematic and thrilling as anything you've seen in a big superhero film. So. That's where we are with video games right now, where the, the the composition of the shots and the way the action is is portrayed on screen isn't primitive anymore. We're in a mm-hmm. cinematic age for video games. Uh, well, you know, on, on that note, if I may change the topic a little bit, on on the note of Spider Man, you know, we we have been competing this summer in this thing called the Summer Movie Wager. Mm. You can find it at thesummermoviewager.com. 
currently Jermaine and Peter are in the lead. Uh, Jermaine actually uh, with 36 points, Peter with 30 points. Uh, the rest of us desperately trying to keep up. Um, but guys, I, I just want you guys to know, I'm, I'm, I'm calling this now. You know, All of us put Spider-Man pretty high up on the list. Uh-huh. Uh, I put it at number three. Jeff Kanata put it at number one, like an insane person. Uh, <laughs> Devinger put it at number three as well. Jermaine put it at, uh, n- at number uh, five, and Peter put it at number three. Uh, so yeah, a-, a lot of us put it at five or but like most of us put it at three or above, uh, and we all put it at five or above. I got, I have a really bad feeling about this, guys. Mm. I've got a really bad mm. feeling. You think it's going like, to tank? I don't think it's going to tank, but I think it could do like Ant Man numbers, you know. Which uh, it was not a disaster by any means, but was not one of the best performing films of the summer. Right. Um, I was talking with some colleagues at work, so I just started a new job, and we were, we were at a meeting that was about to begin, and no one, um, uh, the meeting hadn't begun, so we we're just talking about random stuff. And I, you know, I always like uh, talking with people not in the movie world to get some uh, market intelligence about. Uh, what people are thinking about and what they're what they're doing. Uh, no one at the meeting knew that Andrew Garfield was not Spider Man anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I don't know. I just got I got a bad. Does it matter about though? This. Like I, I don't I don't know if it really Did matters all... if people know. I just right? think that, well I just think the idea is that they didn't even they, like this movie is barely registered. Did yeah, they know that sure. Iron Man is in it? No, they did not know that either. So. Well, it's lucky that every image for that movie has <laughs> That's right. That's right. Did they uh, know that Birdman is in it. <laughs> Ant Man took in $180 million. I think Spider Man is going to do higher than that, but you know, we, we were originally yeah. predicting like well over 300 or in the, in the high 200s. And I just got a bad feeling about it, guys. I'm just going to put that out there. Now, maybe, you know, uh, Spider Man yeah. will open in a few weeks and Dave Chen will be proven wrong. But uh, yeah. Anyway. I do feel like on the strength of the franchise alone, it'll it'll have to do better than Ant Man. But the bigger problem is it's coming so late in the summer that I don't know how much business it can. No, oh, no, July, July, uh, mid July oh, yeah. is, is really good time, really good. Time. Okay, so um, I, I think. Uh, and speaking of early buzz, no, like no one I know has seen Spider Man yet, but a lot of people have seen uh, War for the Planet of the Apes. Mm-hmm. Many yeah. have called it one of the best films of the summer. Oh man, so, I cannot wait. Yeah. I'm seeing that tomorrow. So yeah. Oh, dude, yeah. I, I have a screening tomorrow as well, but I can't go because it's a oh. <laughs> So, yeah, it sucks. But uh, enjoy it, Devendra. I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts. All right, guys. Uh, any other thoughts on E3 or shall we move into what is going to be a pretty packed film news discussion? Let's, Let's go. All right. So a bunch of things to run down today in film news today. All the stuff you can find at SlashFilm.com. Uh, firstly, Daniel Day-Lewis says he's quitting acting. Again, uh, according to his publicist in a statement, quote, Daniel Day-Lewis will no longer be working as an actor. He's immensely grateful to all of his collaborators and audiences over the many years. This is a private decision and neither he nor his representatives will make any further comment on the subject. End quote. Uh, his last film, theoretically, is going to be uh, coming out December 25th this year, currently called Untitled Paul Thomas Anderson Project. Uh, that's that's not the real title. That's just it's really catchy. Title. Yeah, uh, uh, the kind of working the, the uh, rumored title is Phantom Thread, is what it's going to be called. But yeah, Dan and Lewis, guys, one of the greatest I mean, actors of our time. Yeah, well, he took a break from acting already too. So it's I think everyone's taking a look at this like, yeah, right, Daniel. Yeah, like, a lot of people you're, are you're like the band going off stage <laughs> and just waiting yeah. for us to clap for you to get back out. You're like the LCD sound system, <laughs> or the uh, yeah, or the yeah. Uh, more like, I think more like the boxer. Right. Everybody's right. like, "Oh, you're retiring? Okay. Well, let's wait three years." And but 
Uh, best thing wasn't, I saw wasn't was... Wasn't he in that movie called The Boxer? Is that <laughs> what you were referencing? No, that's not what I was referencing. But, uh, you know, the I, I think it. You know, you see Sugar Ray Leonard and all these yeah, guys. They're, they're, the, the 1997 film called The Boxer. Anyway, okay, go ahead. Very nice. <laughs> He's like the guy who only uses his left foot. <laughs> <laughs> nice. He's like the guy who gangs of New York. Okay, anyway, go ahead. <laughs> um... <laughs> But uh, the best thing I saw was my uh, my co-host on DLC, uh, Christian Spicer, tweeted, uh, the twist is that he was never acting. He was only being. <laughs> <laughs> um, some people have speculated that he might be method acting his way into the role <laughs> of an actor who retires. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the yeah. jokes themselves, I guess. But uh, the, the, to take this on a – you take this out – take him at his word and to take this on a serious level – I think this would be a huge loss for cinema because he is an extraordinary, extraordinary actor, and uh, the projects he picks usually are of the highest caliber. And he brings something that no one else brings. And it's easy to make fun of his methodology, and it's easy to make fun of the sort of cult of Daniel Day Lewis. But the truth is, the work is so incredible that it, I think this would be a loss for all of us. Agreed completely. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's just no one else like him, and uh, he is a master. He he kind of vanishes into roles, uh, and he's one of those people that, like, from movie to movie, is completely unrecognizable. The the only one who I can think of that comes close, but who obviously isn't as uh, prestige as Daniel Day Lewis, is Gary Oldman. I remember when I was growing up seeing a new Gary Oldman movie, I would just be like, "This is a completely different human being." That's how mm-hmm. I feel when I watch Daniel Day Lewis movies, and uh, so yeah, definitely. Someone who will be missed. Interestingly, you know, we say you will be missed. Um, it was Miles McNutt who pointed out that Daniel Day Lewis. This this announcement at Variety dot com. It basically feels like they dusted off uh, a obituary and just like slightly <laughs> altered the language. Well, the copy's uh, there, you know. It, it, yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> it's just it's very it's very odd language um, uh-huh. here. The, so the headline of this article is Daniel Day Lewis. Uh, quits acting, and uh, you know it, it says uh, he, you know it, it reads like you know Day Lewis has been praised for his shape shifting acting and versatility. He's known for going to extreme lengths for his performances, frequently remaining in character off screen. Yeah. You'll be survived uh, by his yeah, wonderful da- career. Da- the, the, it ends. Day Lewis has three children and is married to writer and director Rebecca Miller. <laughs> oh, why that's you, definitely. Why yeah. would you put that in there for someone who's still alive? <laughs> anyway, it just is a yeah. very weird article. Um, so Daniel Day Lewis. Amazing talent, uh, Amazing talent, and we hope uh, that he acts for as long as he feels uh, it gives him joy. I look forward to seeing what new activity he throws himself into. Last time it was shoe cobbling, I mm. believe. Yeah. So, yeah. And woodworking. He, yeah. Um, I, I'm, I think the anticipation for this pairing with Paul Thomas Anderson, for me, could not mm-hmm. get any more anticipated. Oh, yeah. I, yeah, yeah. I just – ugh. That uh, movie needs to get here now. Yeah. Uh, this like my two of my favorite people teaming up, and it's the last time. It feels like uh, just momentous. Well, speaking of shoe cobbling and piecing things together from <laughs> whatever detritus you have on the ground, uh, Han Solo movie uh, is <laughs> <Wow>. coming apart. <laughs> coming apart, coming off the rails, guys. Phil Lord and Chris Miller are off the movie. Uh, this just was announced like a couple hours ago, so we're reacting to it pretty fresh. Uh, but yeah, Phil Lord and Chris Miller, for those who don't know, they directed 21 Jump Street, the Lego movie, 
and they were supposed to direct a standalone Han Solo film that had this amazing cast. Uh, well, it sounds like they did, mostly did direct it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This movie is supposed to come out in May of 2018, May 25th, 2018. And they are they started shooting in February, and they're three weeks away from wrapping. There's also more reshoots planned for the end of summer, and they abruptly have left the project. It's insane. Now, now let's let's run down what we know for a bit. Okay, so some people have some some facts uh, that they put out in the last couple hours. Adam B. Vary at BuzzFeed uh, wrote the following. He wrote, uh, "Quote: Lord and Miller began production on the untitled Han Solo film in February. According to a source familiar with the project, the director's improvisational and highly collaborative creative process increasingly clashed with Lucasfilm and Disney's more structured working preferences. The decision to leave the movie, according to this source, was not." The filmmakers, end quote. So, mm-hmm. uh, according to this source, they were fired off the project. Um, Mike Sampson also did a tweet storm in the last uh, 30 minutes or so. He wrote the following The Han Solo story I've heard from a variety of sources keeps returning to one thing reshoots. Kathleen Kennedy, uh, who, by the way, for those who don't know, is one of the, uh, the big wigs over there at uh, Lucasfilm, was unhappy with the direction of the film. And as reported in Variety, in general, with Lord and Miller, she felt it wasn't Star Warsy enough. Things came to a head when she insisted that Lord and Miller collaborate with new creative talent for reshoots slash edits. This should sound familiar to Rogue One fans. Whereas Gareth Edwards played ball, uh, Lord and Miller balked and told Kathleen Kennedy, mm. no way. They stuck to their guns, and that was the proverbial straw on the camel's back. Everyone I spoke to seemed to love what Lord and Miller had done, but also saw how it could upset a risk-averse studio, end quote. Well, from, from what I gather, um, and this is outside looking in, obviously, but uh, especially the way these guys work is not the way a giant multinational corporation likes their tentpole franchises handled, which is, let's just shoot a bunch of shit and see what right, we get. Right. Right. And, and uh, you know, we'll off the cuff and why don't you try that? Yeah, why don't you riff for a while and we'll, we'll figure it all out in the editing room and we'll edit – it'll – we'll figure it out then. We'll make the movie several times and we make the movie once with the script and we make the movie once in the, in the shooting and then we make the – we really make the movie in the edit where we take all this hours and hours and hours of footage that we just kind of fucked around and did and we carve it into a thing. And mm-hmm. it sounds like uh, that's not how they want Star Wars movies made. It's, yeah, it, uh, it is strange to it took so long for all this to come to head to right? Although I guess this is the best of both worlds for Lucasfilm, right? Because they got these guys to make most of the movie, and now, like at the very last minute, like they can go in and just tweak what they need to tweak. I, I guess. Don't, firstly, I don't think I don't, they're looking at it that way. <laughs> yeah, I don't, it's not like, I don't think they're like jackpot. <laughs> we, got, we got these incredibly prestigious directors to leave the project publicly uh, in the middle of the film. I think that this is probably very similar to, yeah, what happened with Rogue One. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, for those who don't know, the, the rumor that we have heard from sources uh, that has never been confirmed is that uh, Gareth Edwards, who is the director of Godzilla, Monsters, he directed Rogue One, uh, was essentially removed from the project mm-hmm. uh, it, it, towards the end of the project and during reshoots. Tony Gilroy, who did a bunch of the Bourne films, uh, Michael Clayton, came in, basically uh, reshot up to 30 to 50% of the film, and like that's the movie we ended up getting. This explains why a massive number of shots in the trailer never ended up in the final film. Uh, and so, f- again, feels like 
in that situation, Disney started getting risk averse and thought, oh, I don't, I don't like this, what these guys are doing, and this guy's doing, it's too bold, uh, we got to be safe with this IP. And, well, I uh, mean, from, right. from my perspective, Rogue One turned out great. So it's hard for me to fault them there if that's the final product. Although you could definitely see the seams, right? You can see where parts of that movie were just chopped out. Whatever right. they were trying to do, like, in the and we don't know what the other yeah. version of the the exactly you know, right. Maybe maybe the was. other version sucked. Like we do, we don't maybe know. Would have, we don't, maybe would have been great. Who knows? Yeah. Maybe would have been. It reminds more me a lot fair. too of uh, what happened with Ant Man and Edgar Wright. Edgar and like Wright, he yeah. was working on that project for years and creative differences again. Like yeah. And the, and the takeaway from all of those, I yep. think, is that w- when you sign up to direct one of these movies, you are not – in a lot of cases, the director is the most powerful person there and it's that director's vision or whatever. That is not the case with these big Disney properties. Yep. These are – you are a cog in a much grander machine that is – a, a, a billions of dollars uh, across wide swaths of departments. It is not you're not just making a movie. You're making a component in a theme park and a component in a toy line, and you you are progressing a machine that is so much larger than you that you are not that important. And I think that uh, you know Disney understands that they are creating something that is is very. Um, mm-hmm robust and needs to be shepherded in a very specific way. We can argue whether that's smart or not smart, but so far it's pretty worked out pretty well for them. It's worked out pretty well financially, yeah. I mean, uh, in, in the chat room, Jim McVeigh says, quote, the standalone films were meant to be an experimental sandbox environment for stories, end quote. I don't know. Meant uh, to be for whom? From whom? Yeah, yeah I, I, know. I mean, that's like, what they said. I, that's I think how it was originally pitched as. They yeah. could have been, a, but there's a high potential for it to be that, but I, yeah. it doesn't feel like it's turning out that way. And I can see it both ways, Jeff. On the one hand, you're right. I mean, the, these movies are product that are going to generate uh, billions of dollars in revenue, and so there's a desire to not mess with that too much. But on the other hand, I think it leads to um, movies that creatively uh, feel similar to each other. Uh, and Rogue One felt that way? I mean, I liked Rogue One. It, it was solid. You know, I would give Rogue One a BB+. It was not a bad film by any stretch of the imagination. But could it have been an A is the question. I know for you it was an A. You know what I mean? It was, yeah. Um, but for me, I'm like, hmm. Like, it yeah. feels like... And, and also, we should point out that I guess when it comes to playing it safe, that movie did take some chances. You know, yeah, seriously, that, yeah. that movie ended. Well, that's Come what on. I'm. That's what I'm. That's what I'm trying to point out is yeah. that I, I think it's a false dichotomy saying it's either create these very safe, samey movies or hire cool directors. I, I don't. I don't think that's exactly what's happening. I don't think that they're completely homogenizing everything. I mean, I know you feel that way about Marvel movies, but um, who, who knows? I, and I'm not saying yeah. that it's a good thing that they're throwing these people out and taking control. Maybe a, a kind of wackier Han Solo movie we would all love. I don't know. Um, right. But I can, I can also see how that would like play, like be murder on the uh, extended universe. You know, mm-hmm. like if you have people like riffing, joking yeah. around on set and they say things that is, it's like funny in the room, but it's like, Oh, we have actually have a book that like, um, right. We wrote that directly contradicts what you said you know like all the bible <laughs> exactly the show bible uh i think what's fascinating about the situation is it feels very similar to rogue one and mm-hmm. we see how it plays out differently with rogue one because right. lord and miller basically have fu money you know like they right. at this point are incredibly successful directors they've taken 
uh, they've taken franchises that were basically impossible to do well, and they have delivered again and again. They're right? proven directors who've like kind of done the impossible, whereas with Gareth Edwards, it's yeah. like, you know, he made a couple of movies in Godzilla, made a lot of money, but was a mess. So I can right. understand why they had trepidation there. Yeah. Right. Uh, or, or like, uh, he, he's, he can kind of be like a good... It seems like Gareth Edwards has basically decided to be a good soldier in this situation. Yeah. Yeah. And that's totally understandable. Like, um, I, I, I don't begrudge him that at all. I'm a good soldier, you know, like that's the kind of thing I would do. Um, but then you see a situation where uh, someone, these guys were not good soldiers. Like they, they decided, hey, whatever, we're, we're not, not only are we not going to do this, we're going to do this in the most, like worst way possible publicly. <laughs> like they could have hung on and um, figured out a way, played nice with whatever director they're bringing in to help you know, change this project and they could have kept this all on the DL, but they're just like, Nope, we don't have, to, we don't have to do uh, that. This is definitely not the worst possible way. We have... Their statement was, their statement was like, you know, Hollywood nice. It wasn't. It, yeah. Like... It was like creative differences, but still yeah. it's, I mean, yeah. it's, it's Devinger that, that statement is nice when it happens before the movie starts shooting. It's not nice <laughs> oh, no, when you're three weeks away from the end. I'm just saying, this whole situation could be even worse. Like, you're right. They could you're, you're be right. pitching a fit, and who knows what's going to happen after this. Cause, They're going to yeah. go off and uh, shoot the solo Captain Kirk project. <laughs> they could have they – you're right, Devinder. They could have scorched the earth like uh, Josh Trank There's did. still time. Yeah, <laughs> Don't Josh worry, guys. Trank, right? <laughs> anyway, uh, so what, whatever the case, I think, A, this doesn't – bode very well but b we've seen uh lucasfilm kathleen kennedy and disney salvage projects that have had a lot of creative tumult in the past and i expect this will be the same i expect han solo will again in from my perspective probably be a b or a b plus and maybe and maybe an a for jeff (laughs) (laughs) no accounting for taste right (laughs) there's no accounting for taste all right guys uh so a few other things came up this week uh, so Damon Lindelof, he is just off what many regarded to be a very successful uh, series finale for The Leftovers, mm-hmm. uh, and I certainly enjoyed watching the show. Devendra, it sounds like you were also a yeah. big fan of Did season we, three. We didn't even talk about the finale. Yeah, we have not talked about the finale. I was it hoping is very to, good. That's I all was I hoping to do this. it as an after dark, but yeah. one of us hasn't finished watching the show yet, Jeff. Sorry, guys. Um, I have a child. Uh, but anyway, yeah, so Damon Lindelof coming like... Uh, delivered an ending for a very critically well-regarded series that actually people really respect and appreciate. Uh, and so coming off that, uh, there is a lot of talk about this uh, Watchmen show that he's developing for HBO. And thought I'd ask you guys, what do you think of Damon Lindelof plus Watchmen? On the, on the one hand, I think... When, when I think of Watchmen and Damon Lindelof, it feels like, wow, those are two... Like the feelings yeah. I had when watching <laughs> Leftovers... Those are the feelings I had when reading Watchmen, you know. Absolute um, despair. Yeah. Yeah, absolute despair and like uh, What is this though? Is this an adaptation of the graphic novel or is this characters from the graphic novel doing new things that are original to television? I believe it's adaptation of graphic novel. I don't that. need that. I don't <laughs> need it. We we got that. We got as I think we got as good a Watchmen as can be done. I really do. And I know people are going to disagree with me, but it it was slavishly uh, beholden to the uh, you know the the source material, and it it had a bud- budget and it had a vision, and I think that's the best we're gonna get. I don't need the TV version. I really don't. 
Yeah, I wish he was working on something new. Like the leftovers, when he when we started hearing about him adapting that, that can it came out of nowhere, right? It was a book that I guess was popular, but it was it wasn't a property that was widely known. So seeing what he would do with it would be interesting. Watchmen just feels like I I don't know. I feel like his talents could be used elsewhere. I, I was reading interviews with Alan Moore uh, a long time ago, and this one quote from an interview from a long time ago just just still stays with me to this day. Uh, he said uh, something along the lines of, uh, "I didn't write Watchmen so that it could be adapted. It could be adapted into a film. In right. many ways, I wrote Watchmen to show what couldn't be made into a film. Like right. he showed what was specific. it's about the comic book medium, right? What was specific yeah. to comic books that could not be imitated in any other medium, right? Um, and that's always stuck with me. Like that, that he he specifically mm-hmm. intended it to be this one thing." And that Hollywood keeps trying to take it and turn it into something else, um, but there's some really great material in those in those uh, graphic novels. And so, yeah. what what if it's like a meta show though? What if it's about a TV writer trapped <laughs> in a writing room, <laughs> adapting an unadaptable? Yeah, you know, he can pull a Spike series. Jones adaptation on this thing. I don't so, know, but yeah, I, I, I wish he was doing something more. Answering the age-old question, who watches The Watchmen? Mm, indeed, <laughs> indeed. All right, uh, last story I want to mention. Very, something very strange happened uh, last week, guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> so Sony announced that uh, this, this new program called Clean Version. That's the, the name of the program. It's called Clean Version, which is an initiative that offers the edited broadcast or airline version of uh, Sony's movies that you could theoretically get on iTunes, Vudu, and Fandango now. So if you've ever seen a, a movie on a plane, it usually edits out the most egregious, disturbing, sexual, yeah. You would violent. think so. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so most of the time it does. Uh, but the, <laughs> those movies have never been available for purchase, guys. Until now, theoretically, when they, they launched this thing called Clean Version. And then almost immediately had to retract it. Uh, so what happened was the DGA came out against it. Um, the DGA released a quote that says, uh, throughout the expletive laden. (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, um, the quote, taking a director's edit for one platform and then releasing it on another without giving the director the opportunity to edit violates our agreement. End quote. Judd Apatow, Seth Rogen, who have movies with Sony, both came out against this terrible plan. And then they had to come out and basically say, whoops. Whoopsie daisies, we're not doing smooth, it anymore. Smooth move. They, they had a video uh, announcing Clean Version. It is no longer on their YouTube channel. <laughs> uh, it, that, that, I, that, is, that is very bad. If you I think move. there's going to be – I think there's probably people listening to this show that aren't old enough to even remember seeing something like Goodfellas on television. Right, mm, right. You know, yeah. that just doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. But man, is it funny. It's so <laughs> funny. It's crazy. Yeah, I don't give a shoe, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, they would toss in the most random words, too. You know, it wasn't like it, it wasn't super comprehensible. Ever. We've lost something, I think, guys. Um, <laughs> but actually, I just watched Forgetting Sarah Marshall on a plane, which is still a, an amazing movie. I was surprised by how much they left in. Like this was on Delta. Like the uh, there were definitely there's a lot of nudity still left into the movie. Some things were definitely cut out, but I was surprised that you know bare breasts and things like that. Yeah, the Jason, the the Jason, his his little man was not there. (laughs) Little Jason was not there, but there was definitely a lot of other uh, you know you know bare breasted ladies. It was crazy. Mm. 
Interesting. And the swearing, and they kept the swearing in too. So this is like on Delta, maybe they like cut out some things, but not everything. I just feel like even the airplanes are like getting a little racier now. Yeah, yeah. I don't uh, know. Uh, but I, I agree, it, you know, these dubbed versions were very funny, uh, but I also agree that, you know, directors shouldn't have movies taken out of their hands and edited in ways that they don't approve Most of. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure about those dubbed versions, like in general, those TV versions. Are like, did the, Do directors work on those? You know, I'm not sure about that. I think I, they have I, to at least approve the words. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not 100% sure. Uh, if you are a director that's had a movie dubbed, write into slash gmail.com, let us know. Uh, but I, I think we're glad that directors aren't getting their creative control ripped away from them sure. and, yes. and uh, their movies cleaned up. Uh, but it, it, it is still an interesting historical curiosity for movies like that to exist. Uh, okay, I know this isn't on the show notes, guys, but there is one other thing I want to mention. And I, I just want to make clear that as I'm mentioning this, I am not just trying to rub this news in Jeff Kanata's face. <laughs> um, but uh, Wonder Woman, guys, it is destroying uh, at the box office. I've never been so happy to be wrong, David. <laughs> I really haven't. It it's, is, it's so great to see. It is destroying. I mean, um, it's almost at $300 million domestically. And it has an outside chance of being the number one film of the summer. Yeah. Um, and like, it's, it's probably not going to get to Guardians of the Galaxy. You know? just, so just so you know, Wonder Woman right now has made $279 million uh, domestic. $578 million worldwide. What's amazing about Wonder Woman is the drops from week to week are so low. Typically, a movie will drop you know, 50, 60, 70% from weekend one to weekend two. For Wonder Woman, it's like 30%, 40%. Uh, these are astonishing numbers for a superhero film, which are typically more front-loaded. I guarantee you, Transformers is going to be front-loaded, guys. That movie <laughs> is not going to have what we call legs in this business. It's going to uh, open real big. Wheels that turn into legs. That's so. right. It's going to drop precipitously the second week. Uh, Wonder Woman, man, just keeps on going. Currently Good. at 279, yeah. uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 is at 375. So it has a long way to go if it's going to get there, but it's not impossible. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, it's going to be really interesting for the summer movie wager at the there end of the may, year. This may very well be <laughs> my worst showing and the summer movie wager <laughs> ever. I, I may, may, may have created the worst list I have ever created. <laughs> I, I think it's entire, it is distinctly possible. <laughs> well, the only things that are big question marks for me now right, are, as, as I mentioned, Spider-Man 3. Uh, I'm sorry, not Spider-Man 3. Uh, Spider-Man Homecoming. How well that movie's going to do, and also Despicable Me three. Like those are the only movies left, in my opinion, that are, are can o- earn over three hundred million dollars domestically. Right. Um. But I could be wrong about that. Maybe something else is going to dark horse its way into the top uh, four. We'll see. But I just wanted to give a shout out to Wonder Woman, which is just destroying at the box like, in Keep a way that yeah. no other movie is this summer. So. And I honestly can't wait to rewatch it, too, and I think a lot of people would feel the same way. So that's kind of the legs that keeps it going, and I don't know if theaters will keep it around longer than usual, too. I, I mean, mm-hmm. when, I, when I went to go see Rough Night, uh, there were four screens still showing Wonder Woman. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I mean, it is going to still be out there for a while, uh, but we'll see. We'll see. Anyway, shout out to yeah. Wonder Woman and, and the box office that it is crushing right now. Uh, also want to give a shout out to all the people that donated to the Session Cast this week. Thanks to Alien Trap from Toronto, Canada. Uh, someone actually donated named, Please Stop Cursing So I Can Listen With Kids. Won't someone think of the children? 
No. Oh, we do have to do our own clean version. Yeah, we have to do our own <laughs> clean version. Jesper Astrum is donating so Jeff can watch The Mummy and The Mummy Returns. Oh, boy. Uh, you got, you, I think you got a lot of <laughs> flack for your mummy comments. Unbelievable week, amount of <laughs> flack. I just, I'm shocked that people love the mummy, old, old mummy movies so much. That they were just flabbergasted that I would would have walked out about. I think it. I think it's more the jarring, the like whiplash we got, Jeff, from your comments about old mummy and then a new, and mummy. new mummy. So I th- a couple of things I want to say about that actually. Uh, firstly, a lot of people gave us shit for saying like this was the first, the, referring to the uh, Brandon Fraser movie as the original oh mummy. Of course, we know, guys, we know. <laughs> Of Jeez. course, you know, Boris Karloff and 1930s, 40s, 50s, bunch of mummy movies. Uh, but just, to, you know, for this generation, we're talking about within what this the original, lifetime. Within this lifetime, what the original mummy was. So sorry about that for all the mummy purists out there. Yeah. Um, secondly, you know, I was watching uh, Red Letter Media's review. They have a YouTube channel and a show called Half in the Bag where they review uh, movies. And uh, I, I really enjoy their reviews. And he pointed out something uh, – the main guy, Michael, pointed out something that I didn't even think of, which is that um, if you think about it, the concept of the mummy as being part of the, like this, this monster franchise mm-hmm. is inherently racist in a lot of ways, right? <laughs> because if you think of what mummies are, it's, it's how this other culture uh, preserves and remembers the dead, right? <laughs> And we in America are saying that thing that you guys do with a lot of uh, sacredness and and reverence to us is monstrous and terrifying, (laughs) and we're going to make it this thing that kills people. That's always been true. Yeah, it's always been true. But so then, for you know, for this movie, the the most recent Tom Cruise movie, it's like saying the new the new Universal monster, the baptized. (laughs) Yeah, or something like that. You know, like it's been drowned in water, and now it wants to kill. Um, so, so they had to find ways around that, right? You know, and they kind of did like the mummy is not inherently the, the bad guy in, you know, or, or it doesn't look like anyway, anyway, the movie is ill-advised is all, all we can say. Let me me finish thanking people. And then I want to actually say one other thing about that. So, uh, uh, Eng Ka Lai from North Point, Hong Kong, also donated to the Slash Filmcast. Also, we have some new subscribers Isaac Kaufman, Philippe Herrera, Zach Pappas, and Floyd Hardy. Thanks so much for your subscriptions at, a rate, at the rate of $2 per month. If you want to subscribe to this podcast at the rate of $2 per month or donate to us, go to slashfilm.com, click on the Slash Filmcast tab, use the PayPal links on the side of the page, or go to paypal.me slash filmcast. That's paypal.me slash the word filmcast. All your donations go towards helping us uh, defray the cost of doing the show and putting on the podcast for you guys. So we really appreciate that. Of course, if you want to donate to an even better cause than that, uh, go to GoFundMe.com slash slash formers this week. Uh, we'll be taking I mean, donations. equally good cause. Uh, it's, uh... I think one's slightly better than the other. <laughs> I want to say if you – to the guy who – or gal who uh, refers to themselves as please stop cursing so I can listen with kids. Want someone to think of the children. I think that's all hyphenated. I think that's a hyphenated last name. Um, I would just like to say, uh, do not listen to next week's episode. <laughs> do not listen to the Transformers. For sure. <laughs> there is this. So going back to the, the topic of the mummy, which is so important to discuss. There is this thing going around right now uh, of directors saying that they are making films for the fans. Right. This has happened a few times. Um, 
Jamie from Vancouver in British Columbia actually wrote to us at slashfilmcast.gmail.com. He said, Two similar pieces of film news have popped up recently, and I wanted to see what you guys thought about them. This week, Business Insider ran a short interview with The Mummy director Alex Kurtzman, where they asked him to respond to The Mummy's less-than-stellar reviews. His response was basically, We made a movie for fans, not for critics. Dwayne Johnson said similar comments when Baywatch released earlier this year, though he wasn't responding to an inquiry so much as just getting ahead uh, of the effect of the reviews. <laughs> to me, I- I've been more interested to see how the film critic community has reacted to these comments more than the comments themselves. I follow quite a few film critics on Twitter, and they were positively abuzz when The Rock made his comments. You guys even discussed it on the show, I believe. In regard to Kurtzman's comments this week, Slash Film posted a response that used box office numbers, IMDb scores, and other metrics to essentially make a point of saying, see, it's not just us. No one likes your movie. To be frank, the responses from the film critic community in both instances rubbed me the wrong way more than the initial comments ever did. To me, the we made it for audiences line is the go. It's basically an incredibly awkward question because you're rarely going to get a real answer, especially while the movie's still running and trying to make money. I'd assume that film critics surely know that filmmakers aren't actually trying to invalidate their opinions. They're just answering a question with what little ammo they have to do so. Besides, there is a certain logic to the response when you see franchises like Transformers, Cars, and such perform so well in the face of bad reviews. I'd be curious to know what you guys thought, especially from a critic's point of view, end quote. So uh, Jamie makes a good point, which is that these uh, filmmakers are getting out ahead of the news. And what do you expect them to say? What do you expect them to say when, hey, someone asks you a question, hey, what do you make of the fact that lots of people hate your film? What are you going to say? They're right. Sorry about that, guys. Sorry, (laughs) Universal made a crappy film, you know? Shrug emoji. That's all they need to do. (laughs) I think think it is, I think the the, uh, emailer makes it a perfect encapsulation of how I feel, which is Mm -hmm. it's kind of an an unfair question. It's a, it's it's one of those questions that there's no good answer to, and basically you can interpret what they're saying as we're hoping someone does like it, <laughs> right? You know, the, so, the reason is that we're making it for people for whom it is not terrible. You know, we're making it for people that might like it. Hopefully, there are people that like it, and that's all you can expect them to do. That, yeah, I think it's a it's a crappy situation to say, hey, why does everybody hate your thing that you ma- took you know three years of your life to make? Uh, there's no graceful way to escape that question other than to say, we hope someone likes it. You know? to- totally agree with everything you just said, Jeff. That being said, I think what uh, people were reacting to a lot more was uh, The Rock's comments, right? So Dwayne The Rock Johnson was tweeting out uh, a bunch of defensive tweets when Baywatch came out. So it wasn't like he was asked this question in an interview. He's just proactively getting out there and saying, hey, I can't believe the critics are slamming this one, but clearly it's connecting with the fans. By the way, Baywatch bombed at the box office. Um, clearly it's connecting with the fans. You know, Clearly the fans are liking it. I made it for the fans. And so that I have more of an issue with because right, right. He's, he's getting out. He, he, no one's asking him the question. He's getting out there himself and just uh, – indicating that there's this kind of gulf between fans and critics and that somehow the the opinions of critics who by the way love movies so much that they are willing to devote their lives to talking about them well um, i think i think that's the more more pertinent point uh, honestly and i think that's really the issue that we're talking around is i think there is this perception and i don't know and i think maybe there's some kernel of truth as there are to a lot of uh stereotypes that people who see that many movies or or do anything that often, a person whose job it is to go and do a thing and see it 
see a movie over and over and over again or play a video game over and over and over again or watch a a television show over and over and over again. They see everything. And by virtue of that fact, they are A, more cynical about the the sort of Mm -hmm. machinations of trying to get you to like things and B, their tastes change because anything different than what is the norm is interesting by virtue of the fact that it's different. So when you get, you know, when you get these very mainstream broad films that somebody's going to go to because they haven't gone to a movie in two or three months and now they're going to go see the big new movie from The Rock because they like The Rock and they got a babysitter this week and they're going to, you know, that that sort of middle America experience I think there is a perception that critics can't relate to that because for them, they've seen 14 of these things in the last two weeks, this this very broad kind of banal cookie cutter plots and that anything that's different or unique and that's probably less palatable to the average Joe or Joanne who just wants to be entertained once every couple of months, their tastes are just inherently different. And right. what, do you th- what do you think of that, Jeff? What's- I think there – as I said, I think there's a kernel of truth to that because uh, as somebody that hears that a lot, you know, that, that criticism both in the video game world and in the, in the me- other media, you know, movies and television world, I try to, I try to protect that part of myself a lot, that, that, that enthusiastic sort of joyous like I want to be entertained part. Uh, but I do think that I am also – I mean, I'll talk about E3 as an example. We saw press conferences from Microsoft and Sony, and you know, you see the you see twenty you know shooty shoots in a row, and then you see something like um, an Artful Escape, which is this like guitar, right. <laughs> you know, silly, uh, wistful vision of of what a video game could be. I'm going to respond more to that because it's like, oh wow, something different. So there's a part of me that does like the different thing, but I also try very, very hard in my own critical life to come at things fresh and without expectations. That's kind of one of the reasons I don't see trailers, you know, honestly. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. but so uh, I think, yeah, you're right. There's a kernel of truth to it, but at the same time, people still like well executed genre things in a specific genre. Sure. You know, people like, uh, neighbors and, and, um, 21 Jump Street, you know, like right. movies that theoretically they should have hated because right. they aren't super high, high, uh, what do you call it? You know, they're not, they're not, uh, high comedy, whatever the term is that I'm forgetting. Money horse or something, you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> Money horse, yes. Uh, they're, they're not like necessarily highbrow. Is that the word I'm looking for? Highbrow, yeah. Highbrow, highbrow. yeah. Mm-hmm. Is that even a word? That's um, a word. so. People, st- critics still like those movies. I think so. T- to address Jamie's question about like, are critics becoming overly defensive? Because basically, from from my in my sort of Twitter circle, critic circle, I've seen a lot of people, a lot of people ridiculing the Ro- Dwayne the Rock Johnson's comments and saying like, but is it for the fans? Like I've seen that comment so many times. Like, is it for the critics or the fans? You know, uh, many many times on on my right. timeline in the last week. The, the issue with comments like The Rocks and why people are so defensive about it is because imagine someone saying to you, not only are you not allowed to have an opinion in this matter, but you are incapable of having a valid opinion. Like that's what, that's what 
comments like the rocks are right it's I, like I, I, not, not only are you yeah. not allowed to talk in this situation um but you you can't even do so in a way that's valid it's um, definitely dismissive in a way yeah. i the bigger problem is that i think they the people who say this generally put so little thought into this response like that's that's what you say you know when your movie's getting bad reviews I, yeah, I don't even know if it's worth like <laughs> yeah. mulling over so much. Like, yes. how long have we been talking about this? You're right. right, now? It's, You're just, right. it's like, okay, fine. That's what they do. I'm going to continue doing my job. I hope you make better movies in the future. Goodbye. I also, I, it bothers me when people talk about the critics. Like, right, there's right. this one club that we all signed up to, and and everybody's opinion goes through the, the critics <laughs> machine. And if, we if all there's have a the club, same... I am not in it, Jeff. Exactly. <laughs> me neither. You know, we are, we are as not evidence. In that club. As evidenced by all the disagreeing that we all always do, you know that I I always say, you know, in video games and here, I always say that my job is not to give an objective review. My job is to give an extremely subjective review and then give you as much information about who I am as I can, so that you take my extremely subjective thing through the right lens. You understand right. where I'm coming from and what makes me me, and then you can relate that to yourself or not relate it to yourself. Yeah, and objective reviews like reading the film entry on IMDb, like you know, yeah, directed by this person. It's this long, and stars these people. That's it. I will say one last thing about this matter, which is that uh, the Mummy is actually performing incredibly well overseas. Um, so to compare, it's made fifty-eight million dollars domestically, which is very bad. Uh, my I put it at number ten for my summer movie wager, and I don't think it will hit that. It's not going to get even that high. Um, but it has made $236 million worldwide. So that's yeah. really, really solid. <laughs> and apparently it's doing gangbusters in China. People in China love Tom Cruise apparently. So uh, it's it, he, he definitely made it for some fans. They're just not in the United States, I think. <laughs> All right, guys. The, uh, the Mummy fans. Wait, before we move on to the movie too, Black Panther trailer, just real quick. because we... shout out, Devendra. I do want to give it a shout out because this is our first time seeing this movie in motion. Ryan Coogler's Black Panther. And I uh, just want to say it looks incredible. Like this movie looks like no other comic book movie we've ever seen. It looks the, the production design looks incredible. Just the amount of colors, the amount of variety, the like, you know, calls to a variety of different uh, types of African culture too. like it's. It is insane. It looks amazing. This cast looks great. We get a brief glimpse of Michael B. Jordan, and he is rocking some sort of like Gary Oldman, The Fifth Element kind of look. <laughs> yeah, I think and I'm right, yeah. I'm really digging that. Uh, just everything we're seeing from this movie. Uh, this is exactly what a teaser needs to be. It's definitely gotten my appetite. Uh, yeah, it's gotten me a little hungry for this thing. Um, and as a teaser too, like they got run the jewels or they used to run the jewels track in this thing. And it's, it just goes together so well. This is how you sell this movie. I think this movie is going to make all the money in the world. So we'll, we'll see how it does next year. Number um, number one in the summer movie wager next year. So, for sure. Yeah. For sure. And I, I mean, the amount of views this thing has gotten is insane too. Like I think they were touting the combined views in the first 24 hour was like 89 million, including wow. TV. And uh, the stream has done really well, too. So, I mean, guys, like if you if you're definitely worried about plot points, there's nothing plot related in this teaser. Like just you want to see this. You want to feel this because this thing <laughs> looks great. I mean, Devendra, here, here's the thing. Uh, I'm probably not. Gonna, actually, I might watch it because it's a teaser. But I will say that yeah. I will say that like one of my favorite activities. It's not like I don't like teasers. But one of my favorite activities is coming home from the movie and watching 
all the marketing materials in one go. Like that's what I, I mean. Do. That sounds weird because <laughs> what is what's the joy of that? You're I, not I, I you're think, not getting yourself excited. I take joy. It. I take joy in seeing how well these marketing materials are put together. No, I'm not. Can I'm I, being a hundred percent earnest. Can so, I uh, can I talk about a trailer real quick, guys? What? Yeah, yeah. Jeff, talk uh. about a trailer. So I went and saw uh, it comes at night today uh, because we're reviewing mm. it right now. And uh, before that movie was a trailer for Transformers the last night, which I have already seen. <laughs> okay. So I, I did not have to uh, close my eyes and plug my ears as I usually do in the movie theater. And uh, I sat through that trailer and uh, our review is next week. Stay tuned for that. But I will say this. The movie is three hours long. <laughs> and It's not three hours long, but yeah. It, it is three hours, four and a half hours long. <laughs> it, it feels is, like it. But it is almost three hours long. Two hours and 45 minutes? Two and a half hours. Two and a half hours. Okay. Three hours long. And the trailer has, I would say, 80% of the shots in the trailer are from the last 20 minutes. Wow. That's inexcusable. It's a good thing both the trailer and the movie are completely incomprehensible. It's, it's, but that's the problem. That's the problem. You have. Three and a half hours of movie to, to, to pull from. You have 17 hours of Transformer movie to pull from. And you pull the trailer out of Je- Jeff, uh, I understand. last 20 minutes. I understand what you're saying. You're using the wrong example. <laughs> okay. I'm, only, I'm using the example of what I just happened to see. <laughs> this, is not, this is not the hill you want to die on for this I'm trailer. Not, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not saying that, that Transformers is ruined. I'm saying that, that the way trailers are made is dumb. I think agreed. Agreed. I I don't know. Like I don't. What's salvageable from that movie? I just want to say if uh, if you guys if you are the sort of person who does avoid trailers because you're worried about plot points, um, I think this is a good. The Black Panther teaser is a good way to do it. It is just a tease. It's a brief glimpse, and it's so it's so enticing. And honestly, just seeing people react to it as well, like on Twitter, and I'm talking to people in real life, it's getting people excited. It's getting people like freaking out because this isn't a movie we've really seen very much before, too, right? A superhero story with a pretty much all black cast. It we haven't seen this movie before, so yeah, for that reason alone, it's just worth yeah, take a glimpse at the teaser. It's it's one minute fifty seconds long. I do have some teaser regrets sometimes. You know, I'll I'll admit, like (laughs) what I what I mean by that is sometimes I'll see a movie and then watch the teaser and be like, oh man, that teaser was so good and it didn't give anything away. And yeah. I'll be like, oh, I wish I'd watch that teaser. But It'd be you know nice what? to like geek out about it with your friends, huh? But you know what? Not worth it, Devendra. Not worth Not it. Worth yeah. it. Anyway. All right, yeah. let's move on to our review of It Comes at Night. I just want to talk. And I want honest answers. Do you have any idea what's going on out there? That was from the trailer of It Comes at Night, the new film uh, by writer-director Trey Edward Schultz. This movie, according to IMDb, is about uh, secure within a desolate home as an unnatural threat terrorizes the world. A man has established a tenuous domestic order with his wife and son, but this soon will be put to test when a desperate young family arrives seeking refuge. Now, guys... um, there is so much we got to talk about in spoilers in this, so yes. I, I want to get there real quickly. Um, so why don't we just offer like overall thoughts? Is this a movie 
you'd recommend to people? Is this a movie you, you, you tell mm-hmm. people to see, Jeff Kanata? Oh, man. I don't know. You just saw uh, it, right? I literally just saw it. Oh. Um, I don't know. I think it is a well-crafted movie. Uh, it, it, it is a movie that is very, very difficult to talk about without talking about the end. Yep. yep. Um, I will say I think it has a terrible title. It, so- it, it, it comes at night. Sounds like it's a horror movie. And while there are well, not only that, but elements- the trailers also make it look like a horror film when it is in yeah. fact more of a psychological drama. I would say, yeah, yeah. psychological drama. Not, I wouldn't even say thriller. It's more, a, a, yeah, very much a psychological drama. And and that's a shame because um, I think it it positions itself like it's some sort of monster movie, and it is I mean, not. Uh, guys, like if we determine we call things horror in so many different ways, this movie has enough in it to count as a horror movie counting if we're counting movies like the witch you know which is another kind of slow burn psychological thriller which does go supernatural but i think even without that there are scary bits in this movie there's a lot of tension it comes at night it just sounds like there's a monster let's talk about let's talk about it in spoilers please yeah um yeah but um uh, so uh, uh, I, I hard, hard for me to answer that question. Uh, I think it is a, a, a well-crafted movie with some extraordinary performances, and I certainly was on the edge of my seat throughout, but I was left wondering why I did that. Hmm. <laughs> to yourself. Yeah. Interesting, yeah. Uh, and I will say, by the way, audiences, I think, agree with Jeff. Uh, the, the movie received a B-minus cinema score. Which is very bad. Most movies get you know B plus, A minus, or A. Mm. Uh, so B minus means a lot of people came to the theater and they left disappointed. I will say my audience was audibly disappointed by this. Movie. <laughs> I uh, think the where the movie ends is yeah, they, maybe they, everyone a broke out in laughter at the end of this movie, which we'll talk about. But yeah, yeah, it, yeah. it was not that was not the intended response for the. But end. I don't think just because they laugh at the end or they didn't respond properly. I think there is definitely things throughout the movie. Like people aren't shouting, "I'm scared," while they're gripping, <laughs> you know, their fingers into their seats, which I was kind of doing. Like there is scary stuff in this yeah, movie. Yeah, I, I really lo- like. I, I'll just say yeah. I love this movie. Like I thought I it was. Not, by the way, I did not laugh at the end. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> I just I, want to say that. I, I'll say I love this movie. I thought I was like yeah. super tense throughout the entire movie. Uh, I thought it was beautifully shot. I thought the the concepts it was trying to explore were really interesting. And usually. Uh, movies that don't answer all their questions are are mm-hmm. movies that enrage David Chen. You know, <laughs> yes, movies that like, oh, what happened with this? What was the plot gap with this? Blah blah blah. <laughs> I'm usually nitpicking those things to death in the slash filmcast. Uh, this is a movie that left so many things unanswered, so many loose ends untied. Mm-hmm. But that was the point. Of yeah, the they movie, weren't essential you know? to this story. That, yeah. that was that was the that was in many ways the point, and the unknown was the point. And um, for those for that reason, because it was using the unknown to instill paranoia in the audience, uh, I really liked it. Comes at night. David, your hardware, your thoughts on this movie? Yeah, I really I really enjoyed it too. To your first question, Dave, I would definitely recommend this to people, but it would depend on the person, right? That's yeah, a tough yeah. question. Agreed. Agreed. Because this is. This is a rough movie. It is really violent. It's really disturbing and distressing, and it's a bit of a slow burn. Um, but if I like this movie, falls under I think the archetype of like post-apocalyptic movies in a way too, and movies about survival. Um, and I, I would also still classify it as horror. Like there's enough in there to just creep you the hell out. Um, but yeah, I would be really judicious or I, about who I recommend this movie to. But I think I know people who would love this. And I know people who I'd say, yeah, just may not be for you. That's yeah. pretty much it. 
All right. Well, let's get to spoilers for It Comes at Night starting right now. Now you're looking for the secret. Trying to see this coming? No. But you won't find it because, of course... You're not going to see this coming. You're not really looking. I have been puzzling over how it works. You don't really want to work it out. Who's in the box? I have been dying to tell you. I want to tell you my secret now. You want to be fooled. All right, so I I think I read. Firstly, I want to thank the Slack Filmcast at slackfilmcast.com. Um, mm-hmm. They gave me a lot of stuff to think about in the uh, in the spoiler channel for It Comes at Night. But uh, I think something that was commonly asked at Q and As for It Comes at Night uh, by uh, of director Trey Edward Schultz was what comes at night, <laughs> right? <laughs> Right. The what fear, guys. Fe- the fear. Yeah. But this it's it's kind of, like I understand why people are frustrated by a movie uh that is called It Comes at Night and there is no it in the movie. There's I mean, not even oh, there's not even it's not even like a thing that you don't know. There's just it's it's, it's, it's it could be nothing. There. It could be nothing. It, it um, could be right. nothing, but what what you know, what is the crux of the story is like the fear and paranoia this situation and I this need to survive a, an apocalyptic world. Fear and paranoia is happening all the time, I think, uh, not just at night. And also the the climactic sequence at the end, uh-huh. they open the door and it's broad daylight outside. Right. So it, yeah. that didn't happen at night. Anyway. No, but that's a, I, I don't know. <laughs> I feel like te- that's you're a, being technical, Jeff. You're being, that's I'm a being little, technical. True. A little, little literal there. Uh, but also, guys, the night <laughs> – it, of all the things that scare human beings, fucking darkness, fucking like there's the woods and you don't know what's out there. And there are like maybe zombies and there's this play going around and nobody I don't think they know how it actually gets transferred either. Like this they have all these precautions. This yeah, is a terrible title. I, I think it's a terrible title that missells the movie. But yes, I mean, uh, I, yes, it, the fear is what comes at night. That's fine. <laughs> I, okay, I accept that, but it's the just movie, like the movie really hammers that home. Come on, <laughs> but I understand why people will be frustrated with that. Um, a sure. yeah. few, few other things I want to I want to mention that are really I found really interesting. Firstly, uh, Britt Hayes, uh, who I actually tried to get on as a guest for this episode mm-hmm. uh, from ScreenCrush.com, uh, she could not make it due to scheduling, but I'm a huge fan of her work, and she did an interview with the director of this movie uh, that was pretty interesting. Uh, he, he, both Britt and the director, kind of saw this movie as uh, a a movie about grief, you know, Uh, according to the director, quote, I wrote this movie two months after uh, his um, father died, uh, after his his father died. And I think it was a way of processing grief. It started with that opening scene and what I said to my dad, and it spun off into this totally fictional narrative. But I think it's very much the headspace I was at and the emotions I was dealing with and all of that, end quote. I mean, you can Mm -hmm. obviously see the one-to-one there. I mean, especially, you know, children who have to make the decision to end life support or something. I mean, there's very much those echoes in the very first part of this movie. I, my biggest problem, I mean, the movie, movie destroyed me, absolutely destroyed me. Um, but I don't yeah. know why. I don't well, know. Well, I feel I, bad for you, I, Jeff, especially for that final sequence, right? Oh, there's, fuck, dude. Rough. I, <laughs> so rough, man. I came home. First of all, the movie theater I saw this at is is almost exactly across the street from my house. Mm-hmm. And I came home moments before we started this and I told you guys I would need five minutes uh, because I had to hug my kid. Like oh, I seriously had to man. hug my kid. It, Wait, this that's fuck- why you delayed the podcast, Jeff? Come on. <laughs> 
Yeah, I'm just joking. Uh, Come on, Jeff. Dude, I, I, I mean, I can't. I used, yeah, it's different now being able to. That's a, that is a rough scene. Like they were oh. people f- like gasped and like in a way that I don't normally hear in movies because not only like what happens, it's horrific, but it's her screams. Well, like she it's keeps just screaming, kill me, kill me. Yeah, that which is, I totally get. Uh, yeah. But, you know, like I, w- I yeah, I was uh, the the kind of crying where you like are blubbering. That's mm-hmm. yeah. But which is OK, I guess. I mean, I, it's, I have a harder time putting myself through that these days than I used to. But I don't know where we end up at the end. I don't know why I was put through that. I don't know what I'm supposed to take away. Like, what was away. the broader right, purpose right. of that, right? Like, right. theoretically, you want a take-home message. Oh, I should not grieve as much, you know, or something. <laughs> like, what is the message that the movie should yeah. present? The door I is mean, closed, guys. I, I, I mean, broadly speaking, Jeff, I would say I think what what message the movie's trying to send is that, like, uh, grief and this kind of um, fear – uh, allows us to be closed in and allows us to be less trusting of people, and that sure. uh, that attitude in and of itself can often lead to disaster. Do you know what well, I mean? Well, there's like, a great line in the movie where I think it's the wife says, uh, "You've never seen what happens when people get desperate like right, that. Like they right. could come back and get us." And she's completely oblivious to the fact that they're acting that exact way, right? Right. Uh, sure. Which I think is a really powerful theme, and I loved the movie. For that, and I, there's a lot of, of this movie that I did love, and it's, it, it, I mean, it's a, it's a brilliant case in keeping things small and having that be effective. But I don't know, I after that scene, which is so hard to, I couldn't recommend this movie to anyone that has a child. Right. So, like, which yeah. scene? Are you talking about the scene where he kills, he shoots the kid, or are you talking yes. about the? Yeah, I'm talking about the scene where he shoots That's the kid. Pretty bad, yeah, and. I mean, the, the way that all goes down is brilliant filmmaking because mm-hmm. it's one of those like inevitable but awful, you know, tragedies. And I, I was struck by, I mean, I was um, a puddle of awful, you know, just, just gross as, as that was happening. Just, I just hurt, it hurt physically to see. Yeah. Which I'm okay with a movie doing that to me if. On the other side of it, there is something, and I don't need—I don't need like this feel-good message. I don't need a positive spin. I don't—I just need to understand what the purpose of that was in in your movie, and then all we literally all we get after that is oh, also the boy was sick and he died. Like there's no there's nothing. It's just so, fucking- so my the the sort of moral that I explained just now, like that that is not quote unquote quote unquote good enough for you, right? Like that's. That's a big, I don't, I, Jeff, so you're reacting to this movie too right after seeing it. I think that's rough. This is a movie that you may want to let ma- simmer marinate, a little, marinate it on a little bit, just, just yeah. a little bit. Wait, I think hold, you're on the ball there. Right I, there. I just want to hear. I just want to hear what Jeff's response is to my question. Though. Like, like, was was what I said as the message of the movie unconvincing to you, or do you think it's insufficient? Uh, I think it is insufficient so far as I don't think. I don't think there's any clarity of of that message. I don't think there's a, there's a. I don't think I felt that, and I don't. I certainly don't think the characters felt that. Right? Oh, there's I, no. I, I, I thought mm-hmm. it was. I thought it was very clear. Again, okay. So I, I'm I'm harvesting a bunch of stuff here from from the Slack filmcast, but um, the Slack filmcast here, uh, Sean wrote here. Um, 
I found this movie to be insanely tense and completely successful. It continued to lay down question after question, leaving both the characters on screen and in the audience in the exact same headspace. The roots of their paranoia run through you, too, is completely captivating. In the yep. opening shootout while driving, why did he kill him instantaneously? Did he know those men? Was he attempting to quiet the man before his lie would be revealed? Is it really his brother-in-law that he's speaking about, or was he lying to find his way into the home? Who opened the door? Is there really only one key? Which one of them did it? Etc. 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 Potentially, everyone's innocent. But it's all just suspicious enough to take root and grow, end quote. Right. And, and that, that's what, you know, perfectly And there's 12 put, more questions. Like, is the right. kid really sick? You know, it, like, what did the dog the, go... Is the kid really... Is the, uh, the white kid, right? Is he right. really sick? Yeah. yeah. And, and you never dog, find out. You never find out. Never find out. I, I mean, I loved it for all that. I love... <laughs> I love... There's a beautiful moment of acting when uh, he, uh, he, shoots, he shoots the dude and he says... Um, why did you not want me to shoot him? And the guy like lo- looks like that question just took him off guard. Yeah, it's yeah. beautiful. Like, and all those little secrets that everyone has, and and the other moment where they're having the conversation, and he catches them in the you know brother in law brother thing. All of that, it's beautiful. I don't need those all to be spelled out for me. I really don't. I, I liked the the question marks. I just wanted there to be some reason to endure that level of right, suffering right. it is a movie about suffering and i just i i had a hard time putting myself through it for nothing on the other side i, I hear you jeff like this is i've seen a lot of movies too that i think are really brutal and really just you know harsh and it doesn't feel like you get anything from them uh this one though like yeah it is an exercise intention it, to me it's also like one of those it's it's a survival story similar to something like The Walking Dead, but without the need for like the fan service bits, like the yeah. zombies and all those things. It is about like what you will do when you're pushed to the edge and what you'll do to protect your family and the monsters we become when we're pushed to that level. And that's I mean, so yeah, if you don't have a greater takeaway from that, then yeah, it'll all seem probably pretty pointless. I think the, I think maybe the Maybe the the reason that I feel this way, and I'm just kind of, as I said, this is all raw and, and happened mm-hmm. just moments ago, and and I'm working through it. But I think the fact that uh, what's what's the name of the teenage kid? Uh, I can't remember his name. The the black teenage kid, um, Travis. Uh, Travis, Travis, played by Kelvin yeah. Harrison Jr. Great performance. A great but, performance. Great performance. Really beautiful. Uh, he, I mean, we're inside his head for a lot of the movie. We're seeing these these. Uh, nightmares that he's having and there's this a lot of questions there that that are unresolved mm-hmm. but also to Jorda just also kill him at the end it made all of i think feel like it invalidated all of that stuff that happens between the families because no. okay I, I mean, right, right, because mm-hmm. because like they that that he died because they trusted this other family in some way right, right. They're, like it, they were fucked either way. Right. It was there's no there's no there was no thing they could have done to get out of a, right. a, a, a awful suffering right. moment, o- other than just like killing the family outright initially or or something horrible. Right? Were right. you guys assuming like, the family made the kid sick? Mm, are we working off of that assumption? Because mm, I'm not. The, the I think what we are led to believe is the moment at night when the little boy and the teenage boy. Mm-hmm. find the open door with the dog yep. is the moment that seals their fate. Right? right. Cause, well, cause maybe, but I think the, the question, 
right, that Davinger's asking is maybe uh, the dog made him sick. Or He was having those yeah, visions he, from, like, he was towards like sleep, the beginning of the movie. He was, yeah. like, sleepwalking outside. Like, yeah. you know, maybe he went outside and, and he caused yeah. the dog thing. And maybe while he was out there, he got sick. Maybe it wasn't he was the having right? He was having those dreams towards the beginning of the movie. And that's, like, the big tell for me. And so you're saying you're saying he was sick from the beginning. Yes, and I but think that's. But didn't they establish the fact that within 24 hours they die? Yeah, I think that's right. I think, but but what do they know, guys? <laughs> They're a family held up in like a cabin. They don't know. They don't even know what's happening. They're just going by like the evidence they've seen so far. But they were in the house with the grandfather, and maybe the grandfather gave something to the dog. And maybe, like, it's transmitted in different ways. Like, there are a lot of things. Basically, I don't think we should necessarily work off the assumption that bringing the family in sealed their fate. It's more like, yeah, I I think that could have all happened before. I think what's really interesting, though, is, like, what this kid, this kid basically caused all of this to happen in a way. It was him listening in the attic and being like, I think that kid's sick. Right. And none of this would have happened if he didn't do that. And I think at some point he realizes that, too. So I think there's like the look of horror on his face, like as the situation escalates further and further. Well, uh, I agree but yeah, with that, and I think that's beautiful. But then he just dot it just it all feels so pointless. Mm-hmm. Like there was there was no you know, the, what's right. what's what is so powerful about tragedy like Hamlet, you know, is if Hamlet had just done a couple of things different, we wouldn't have to be here. But right. here we are. You know, that's tragedy. Right. Yeah. That that doesn't seem to be the case in this in this situation. It just feels like it's all just fucked. I, yeah, I think so, that is so, part of yeah. that is part of how I think that what the movie is trying to present. Also, like, yeah. yeah no matter, also, not yeah. all movies need to tell that story, Jeff. Yeah. You know, some movies but can that's be why just I, about how you're just fucked. You know, like right. And and that's that's what I mean is that it was just suffering. And I and and for me, it wasn't. If I come out of the other side of of being put through mm-hmm. something like that and feel a sense of that tragedy of like, Oh man, if only we as humans were different or if, if you know, whatever, but the, it just didn't, it felt like mm-hmm. we're all doomed. It's doomed. Just you're, you're doomed right. and welcome to how horrible it's all going to be someday when this happens. I think uh, the, the big problem with this movie is it ends in a spot that definitely opens it up to ridicule. Like my audience was definitely laughing at it too. It's one of those indie film moves where you just like pull the credits out of nowhere out of seemingly a nothing scene, even though you can definitely read a lot of meaning into what's going on, right? Like they're there trying to decide the kid's fate. I do feel like there are maybe a little more, maybe just like a little more exploration. Like what did we do? Like the uh, thinking about what they did to this family. Right. It, um, it, it ends yeah. abruptly for sure. Yeah. You know, like yeah. however you want, even if you like the ending, it ends incredibly abruptly. And mm-hmm. the laughter was nervous laughter in my audience. Cause like they, they just thought, is that it? Is that is yeah. that all we're gonna get? You know. Yeah. Um. So here's something that really blew my mind, uh, and I want to know if you guys noticed this. This is uh, from Rhett Mitter in the Slack Filmcast at slackfilmcast.com. Uh, he writes about four to five times during the film, during uh, Travis's dreams, mm-hmm. the aspect ratio changes from uh, two point three five to one to two point seven to one. It happens as the dream is beginning and goes away as soon as he wakes up. Um, now, before I continue reading this, do you guys notice that by any chance? Not really. Yeah. It's usually a dark scene, too, so it's really hard to tell. I saw Transformers uh, the last night in IMAX, and it changed aspect ratios, <laughs> no exaggeration, no less than 40 or 50 times, I would say. <laughs> um, 
So I think at this point I've actually lost my ability to recognize aspect right. ratio changes. Right. Uh, but anyway, um, so so essentially the the aspect ratio for his dreams was different than you know real life. But at the end of the movie, um, it's all like in the the aspect ratio of his dreams that slowly becomes real life, even during mm-hmm. the real life stuff. I, I think essentially we're supposed to believe that. The aspect ratio at the end is his dreams and nightmares becoming reality, and, and like the aspect ratio uh, demonstrates that. I just I'm bummed I did not notice that when I was watching. I mean that's film. cool. I, I I don't know. I guess I <laughs> have nothing, weird, nothing greater to say there. <laughs> isn't it a weird? It's so effective that time when he wakes up very at, at the end when he mm-hmm. wakes up and starts regurgitating blood and sees yeah. his own arms and stuff. And then the way we find out he actually is sick is so much less interesting than that. It was, yeah, it was just uh, kind of he's, he, we saw it from his perspective almost, right? Yeah. Well, let me just read this one other thing from Rhett in the Slack Filmcast. He writes here, the whole final scene, I almost didn't pay attention. There were no stakes. Even when he was hitting uh, Joel's head in with a rock, I didn't notice because the aspect ratio told me it wasn't real. And I thought his wife would actually allow her husband to be hit so many times before she shot the guy. I kept waiting for the aspect ratio to change and to get some fucking resolution, and then we just get a fade to black. I don't. I don't know if that's what the director intended. I don't know. I mean, no, it's yeah, definitely I think, I think the director has said he wants it to be like the dream is becoming reality, sure, and sure, he's sure. using the aspect ratio to do that. But I think like it, it's interesting. Like, yeah, he, he's signaling with the aspect ratio that it's a dream, but then it's actually reality. Do you know what I mean? And and I can some people for for Rhett it was very frustrating. Of course, none of us actually noticed it, so we can't really comment. Yeah, I guess um, that's one of those things too. Like when you start to view movies in a really technical sense, like those things will take you out of it. Like what the story is. Well, actually but yeah, to. I mean, it, but, something yeah. like an aspect ratio change. I feel like it's meant to draw attention to itself. You're meant to notice it. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, Devendra, your your thoughts on the end of, of uh, It Comes at Night? I think uh, that whole situation, like it is, I. I it's a shitty situation and it comes about because not because of any monsters and not because of anything else at all. It is purely their paranoia about what could happen. Um, and I think in a way they're also blind to the actual dangers in front of them too. Like if they were, if he was really paying attention to that kid, like that kid was going through some stuff. He was having these weird dreams. I feel like if they were more focused on what mattered, like their family rather than the external threats. Like they, I don't they probably couldn't have saved him, but they could have avoided this whole fiasco. Maybe I think it's and so I interesting. That, I think it's so interesting that you interpret his dreams as being a symptom of his sickness. Like I, I did not feel that way at all. I thought, I, yeah, yeah. Early on, probably not. But I think by the point where we confirm that this is him and him, like in a way, that's how I read it. And I think it makes it at least works. It gives me like a through line to be like, oh, maybe something is going on with this kid even before this, you know, even before they meet this family. And I think for me, logically, that kind of makes sense because that grandfather was in there and we didn't know how he got infected and how much exposure they had. Um, yeah. But the final scene, I don't, that whole thing is just horrific. And Aren't to me, they... what's really tragic about it is how easily it could have been avoided. Aren't they dead? Aren't, aren't, isn't Joel and wife? Or, oh, they're Joel, all dead. Yeah, they're dead, they're right? They're, yeah, they're, they, they're all going to die. Yeah, so, like... Why, wait, why do you think they're going to die? Just out of curiosity? They were they're all out exposed with, to She's, like, kid. kissing her son, and, I mean, they're all... Yeah. If you need gas masks and gloves to deal with people and, who are sick and their son is sick, like, what... 
Yeah, I guess I, that's. I, and I don't I think any of them will have the will to like. I didn't know if some of them were uh, some people were immune or not. That was my question. We don't know. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't. That makes it, it even more tragic. That's like the end of the mist or something. <laughs> you know, that's just like. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one thing I also like. There are little bits of this movie. Like we, uh, Joel Edgerton's character was a teacher, but now he is definitely something very different. I wonder, like. What was the progress to that change? You know, what kind of led him down this path to be such a capable person who could take care of himself? It kind of you kind of wonder like what happened to Tom Hanks's character in Saving Private Ryan, right? Um, and the way they disposed of the body at the beginning, I wonder how many people they killed. Like it's just so they knew like exactly what to do. They had the process. They buried it. They yeah. light it on fire. And maybe they knew they had to light it on fire because if you don't, something bad will happen and they'll come back. Um, like, I like all those little bits of this movie. For me, this movie is made up of all those little things that we don't quite understand or know. And I've seen so much post-apocalyptic crap. I think this one handles the tension and the paranoia of it all really well. Something like The Road, but more in a horror sense. I agree. I, I think that the, the the confines of this movie, the the way it shows restraint as to its mm-hmm. scope, it's it's so fascinating to just see this little this little scene of people trying to handle it. But I also wonder, like, what's their long-term plan here? If if two goats and a chicken can have that big impact on their life, right. like, how long can they theoretically live there and not? I I mean, we 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 find out that they have solar. We find out that they have a, a water source, evidently that mm-hmm. they trust. But other than that, what the hell are they eating? Yeah, yeah you survive. I mean, were they trying to grow things? I think. Well, according to the trailers for that <laughs> new movie, The Mountain Between Us, with uh, Kate Winslet and Idris Elba, a uh-huh. person can survive for uh, three days or five days without water and like twenty-one days without food. Mm. So you know, that sounds like a great life. Keep that in mind. Keep I mean, mind. it's it's definitely not the best life, but it is all about yeah surviving in these extreme circumstances. And as far as far as movies go about that, by the way, like this is it's so ingenious. I think their whole little setup and the way they have things going and the rules and everything, like they definitely this is like in any other movie, right? These people would be the heroes. These people would be the ones to like rally everybody to them and like you know fight against the zombie hordes and maybe like they'll have a happy day at the end. But yeah, not not to me. This felt like more like a realistic version of how this whole thing could go down. I will say my favorite moments are the small ambiguous moments mm-hmm. um, between the two main characters. Specifically, like there's that moment when uh, Joel Edgerton's character Paul is talking to Will Christopher Abbott's character. Uh, and like tying him up to uh, a tree, right? And asking him all these questions, right? And saying like, if you're honest with me, it, you'll, it'll be fine. But if you lie, I'm going to kill you. And there's this moment where the camera lingers on uh, Christopher Abbott character's face, Will's face, as he's getting untied. And you just, you don't know what's going on in that face. Like, what is, is he saying? Like, is he relieved that because he told the truth or is he relieved because his lie was bought? Later on in the mm-hmm. movie, there's mm-hmm. a scene where he offhandedly mentions that he's an only child, but then Joel Edgerton's character says, what about your brother? I thought you had a brother. And he says, oh, I mean, this guy felt like my brother. Yeah. Uh, was he lying? You don't know. I wonder what happened with those two guys. Like, I think there was more there that right. we didn't know. It's yeah. an incredibly tense moment and an ambiguous moment that's never resolved. And I like the way the movie brought that to light. So <laughs> anyway, loved all the, a lot of moments. Really loved the movie as well. Sorry it was so emotionally devastating for you, Jeff. But... Um, Glad you were here to talk about it with us anyway. 
Uh, all right, let's wrap up, ladies and gentlemen. You can find more episodes of this podcast at slashfilmcast.com. Email us at slashfilmcast.gmail.com. Our spoiler bumper is from uh, filmmaker Kyle Hillinger. Our theme song is by adamwarrock.com. Simon M. Harris does our slash film court music. Uh, and stay tuned here. We'll be reviewing next week. In the meantime, Devendra Hardware, where can you find more of your work? You can find me on Twitter at, at Devendra and or at Badtech at Engadget.com. How about you, Jeff Kanata? I am giving away a Switch, a Nintendo Switch, Ooh. this week on my show that is called Newest, Latest, Best. It's on Anchor. You can download the Anchor app and search for Newest, Latest, Best or go to anchor.fm slash NLB all week long doing trivia questions on the show. And at the end of the week, uh, we will select one of the correct answers to give a Nintendo Switch. How cool is that? Uh, I also have a long-form video game show. If you want to hear more talk about E3, you can hear my show DLC, which is at 5x5.tv slash DLC. And I have a comedy science show called We Have Concerns. That you can find at wehaveconcerns.com. Find all my stuff at davechen.net. Follow me on Twitter at davechensky. That's davechensky. And my new film, Dr. B, short film, is online right now. You can find it in the show notes. Uh, or at slashfilm.com. Next week will be our review of Transformers The Last Night. <laughs> yeah. Because be you demanded it. <laughs> Devinder, you have not seen you have not seen this movie. I have not seen it yet. No. Yeah. Yeah. I mean I will say you should see it in IMAX three D. <laughs> I will try. I'll try to yeah. see it in the biggest screen possible. Yeah. And so I, have to pay I, for I will it, say so, a yeah. lot of people have actually requested that we see it in four DX. Uh. Yeah. So, Devinder, do you feel like taking one for the team? Because <laughs> we'll we'll I've already it seen it in non 40x. So. We'll see how it goes next week. I feel like that movie would kick the crap out of you in 40x. <laughs> There's a lot of rumbling that would happen for sure. All right. Well, <laughs> we'll see you guys next week for our review of Transformers the last night. <laughs>